1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and a show in which we're answering your listener questions. We've had no questions about Mauro McCarty's love life, why the Balloon World Cup exists, or why Newcastle might want Wayne Rooney as a coach, but plenty of questions we actually do have the answers to. Hurrah! My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today is a man who joins Joshua
2: Kimmich in not making the Ballon d'Or shortlist. It's Joe Lowry. It is a tragedy that I am not on that list. My agent, a.k.a. Harry Kane's brother, has not done his job, and I will be looking for a new agent in the very near future. Hello, Ryan. <laughs> Hello, Joe. You'll always be golden bald to me. <laughs> is that help? Um, you? Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That, that makes me feel a lot better, Ryan. Thank you so much.
1: Good. That was my intention. <laughs> uh, Joshua Kimmich, Joe, not included on the Ballon shortlist. He says, I'm not surprised. I'm not that great as an individual player. Oh, my. Huh, yeah, which kind of <laughs> does tell you a lot about what these things are all about, really, and puts it in perspective. The, uh, the shortlist, Joe, is 30-man. Right. That's not very, very short, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> not very short at all, but uh, Simon Kjell is on there for uh, presumably his outstanding work at Euro 2020. Pedri's on there, uh, Luis Suarez, Lautaro Martinez, and lots of other players who also won't win it. Um it's uh, the, the the top three favorites, according to the bookmakers, Joe, Messi, Lewandowski and Jorginho. So Messi's to lose because Lewandowski's cursed and not allowed to win this award, apparently.
2: Yeah, the Ballon d'Or is a little absurd. Uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of merit, a whole lot of value to it. There is, I guess, merit because Messi ends up winning it most of the time. And that is how it should be every single year that he plays. But the fact that there was a year when he did not win it and Ronaldo has won it or or Luka Modric has won it, that sort of discredits this whole experience for me. So it is a lovely awards gala, I'm sure. But uh, as far as the actual representation of who the best soccer player is, I'm not sure that the Ballon d'Or does a great job of that. Yes, and we've talked about it too much in that respect, Joe. Why don't we
1: introduce the other gentleman on this podcast who may have ordered his Waystar Royco Hearts jersey already. It's Graham Rutherford.
3: I mean, I absolutely would order that if it was uh, for public sale. I think they're being auctioned off for charity. I love that. Like, so many Scottish football fans, for anyone who hasn't seen, basically, Hearts are the the team in... So, actually, Logan Roy, of Succession, he supports Hibs, doesn't he? And then they buy him the wrong team. That's the joke, isn't it? So hearts as part of a marketing campaign for sky who have the rights for succession over here are they're releasing a limited number of uh, waystar royco sponsored shirts and scottish football takes itself very very seriously and a number of the very very serious people did not like that i think it's great fun
1: it is great fun even though you might not want to be sponsored by waystar royco given what happens at the top of that company no spoilers (laughs) by the way i haven't started season three yet but i very much look forward to doing so uh graham this uh, this this brings us into an interesting subgenre of jerseys, jerseys from teams that don't actually exist. <laughs> uh, so, for example, do you have like the kit from Escape to Victory? Do you have the kit no. that the kids wear in that Will Ferrell movie where he coaches and kicking and screaming? Do you have an MK Don's t- kit? You know, like you know teams that don't really <laughs> exist at all. Do you have any of those? <laughs>
3: burn um yeah i do actually have a nasa kit there's this company called concept kits and they funnily enough do concept kits and uh yeah i have a, i have
1: a nasa one which is quite cool i haven't worn that in a while i might dig that out there's also asbury park in new jersey i believe asbury park fc i think it's called they have a jerseys and whole merchandise range and they're not a team at all and right. it's kind of a cool thing <laughs>
3: Yeah, I, I actually have seen some of their stuff, and, and on a similar line, they are, they actually are a team, but have you ever seen, like, Hashtag United's merchandise yep. line? Yeah. They were all originally a YouTube channel, who then started selling soccer kit merchandise, but now they actually do have, like, a professional team, so they've done it kind of the wrong way around, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, they they actually grew their merchandise into an actual team, which is quite <laughs> admirable in some ways. Well, and that's they what play the in Cosmos <laughs> Blue and yellow being the best colours for a soccer team. That is proven. Uh Graham, before we get to the question, so uh, just a note on the Balloon World Cup, which you mentioned, I believe, on the weekend review on Monday. I'm obsessed. Um, I didn't I didn't I was watching clips of it like you, I was obsessed with it. I didn't realise Gerard Piquet was involved. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I've got that done in my notes for today <laughs> for today's podcast. Yeah, Gerard Piquet <laughs> organizes this, and it's not that's not a joke, his what? company, for anyone who doesn't know organize sporting events so they organize the davis cup yeah. and tennis and now they organize the balloon world cup and maybe that, that this is what pk's post football career is going to be like a sort of <laughs> eddie hearn but for novelty sports like he could organize the swamp world cup that you were talking about in the euros yes. previews joe tiddly Links yes. world championship oh, and yes. cricket because that's not a real sport
1: i love it <laughs> i love it so much I'm just picturing Gerard Piquet like in an office, like conference room, like feet up on the table, maybe playing with a Rubik's Cube and he's just spitballing ideas. Like, what do you think, guys? Monkey tennis, (laughs) Balloon World Cup, what should we do next? I love it. I love it. I'm on board. I'm on board too. And also clean clean shaven Gerard Piquet. I can't, it's been clean shaven for a while, but I can't quite get used to it. I think he was at the promotional uh, thing for this Balloon World Cup with Shakira and children uh, with him, but he looks... He looks a lot younger, I suppose, Graham.
3: Yeah, but he's, he's not been very good this season, so he's a bit like Samson, I think, his, his the, the power was in the, the, the <laughs> follicles. <laughs>
1: yeah, That's right. Uh, much like our comrade Taylor Rockwell, who isn't with us today. He's having a day off. I think it's a one-in-one-out policy. I'm back in, but he's gone out um, for this one. So uh, Taylor will be back with us shortly. But for now, it is us three gentlemen. We are charged with answering some listener questions. Let's get the ball rolling with a question from The Kid, it says here. Fernando Torres, is that you? Uh, Instead of the World Cup every two years, what about a second World Cup with nations that just missed the main World Cup, says the kid. This is similar to the Champions League and the Europa League. Graham, this sounds great for Scotland. What do you think?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I actually love this idea, perhaps unsurprisingly, as you referenced there as a Scottish football fan. And to look at it seriously for a second, I'm surprised it hasn't been proposed before because so many of these proposals from FIFA and UEFA and these confederations are about winning votes and winning favour from across soccer and across mm. the smaller nations and the smaller leagues and so on. And this would win a lot of votes from pretty much all the, the, the smaller nations, I would imagine. And why would the larger country, countries object to it as well? Their tournament, the World Cup, is still a, the big event, the one that will attract the most money and the fans. And, and yeah, I, I actually like this idea. I'm not kidding. Like I would, I would be in favour of this
2: idea. Joe, yay or nay? Yay. A big yay. Graham, I completely agree with you. I think this would be so much fun. The kid, you are onto something real here. Like, how much fun would it be to watch some of these countries that we don't get to see as much? I'm I'm presuming that there would be some teams involved that maybe aren't as high profile. There'd still be some high profile teams in there as well, don't get me wrong. Teams that that missed the World Cup. Imagine getting the U.S., Italy, and Chile in that second World Cup. The storylines there would have been insane back in 2018. I, I think there's so much potential here. I don't know... I don't know if it could get the financial backing, given that a lot of these these top nations would be in the, the Champions League World Cup. But I, I'd still love to see this Europa League, for lack of a, a better term, this Europa League World Cup, because I think we would get to see and learn more about a lot of countries that we just don't get to watch all that often. And for me, at least, that's super exciting.
1: All right. So you two, whose nations don't qualify for World Cups, you're <laughs> on board with this idea of a second World Cup, a yes. secondary competition. I'm not so sure... That was a burn, by the way, if you didn't hear it. Uh, I'm not so sure... <laughs> about this myself I think Graham is there a branding issue here what would you call this World Cup World Cup Junior uh,
3: <laughs> you put me on the spot there
1: World Cup ask, ask Graham ask I don't P.K. know that's, not that's true we need to get Gerard involved in the branding exercise here maybe if we used a balloon instead of a ball for the second World Cup that would work <laughs> yeah
3: I, I mean I'm on board with that as well <laughs> these are all I good, think- good ideas at the moment
1: I'm not asking you to come up with some names for this new product, Graham. But I suppose what I'm saying is, who, it, you know, in the same way that the Europa League might have some branding issues or the Europa Conference League or whatever it's called, who wants to be in? Do am I going to aspire to be in World Cup Junior? I suppose is my question.
3: You you would be so you would be if you were certain nations. I'm I su- I'm supposing it wouldn't just be every country that. That misses out in the World Cup, it would only be the ones that that only just miss out in qualification. And then, you know, if you're Scotland, for instance, so we would be in the World Cup in this in this competition. I'd imagine in years gone by, I'm hoping this t- in 2022 we will actually be in the real World Cup. Um, but let's just say in in past years we would be in this. We we would be aiming to kind of go into the knockout rounds in this tournament. So your your ambition would be recalibrated with this competition, much yeah. like teams who don't make the Champions League then go, okay, well we're going to win the Europa League. Um. And I think the Champions League Europa League comparison is a, is a good one. I used to dislike the Europa League, but I think that was actually because it was, it was the zeitgeist at the time that y- you kind of had to hate the Europa League. Do you remember, Ryan, like Thursday night's Channel 5? We used to yeah. be a derisory chant in English football. It used to be the case that Europa League was on Channel 5 and Channel 5 don't really show any any other football, um, Oh, they've got some EFL highlights in the past, I think. But yeah, it's not BBC or, or Sky or anything. So it was a bit of a it was a bit of an insult. But then I actually started to appreciate the Euro- Europa League for what it is. It's not the Champions League. I don't know every team and every player playing in it, and that's what's fun about it. And I feel like I learn something every every time I watch the Europa League. And when I speak to people about World Cups through the years, they talk about how they would watch the tournament and there would be all these players and all these teams that they'd never heard of before or seen before and I feel like a Europa League World Cup could kind of recapture that essence a little bit where you're tuning in and you feel like you don't know every single player who's playing in this tournament and I think that's Hmm. kind of what Joe was suggesting was it just kind of brings a little bit of the fun element to to that tournament.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. So, Joe, if uh, if we're going to 48 teams in 2026, is World Cup Junior like 49 through 96? It's the next 48 teams or something like that. Then if you consider it that way, what are there, 210-ish FIFA members? That's that's like half of the nations so are getting a World Cup of sorts, Joe. It's
2: a, it's a lot of countries at that point. And I, I think the way you'd go about picking teams would be not just going through the numbers necessarily, 49 through whatever. It would be... It would be going through the teams that just missed out on qualification, right, and going through each confederation and assigning slots. Like like if you're qualifying for the Champions League and the Europa League out of one of the, the big leagues in Europe, you have the top X number of spots that are going to the World Cup, and then you have the next X number of spots underneath that. That go to the next most prestigious tournament. I think that would be how you go about this. And, and looking back to 2018, there would have been a lot of interesting, high-profile teams that would have been involved in that. The Netherlands, I already mentioned, Italy and, and Chile, and the United States. I'm sure each year there'd be a mix of that and teams that just miss out via the playoff. Right? Australia just missed out in 2018 uh, in, in a playoff with Peru, I believe. I mean, there's there's lots of it was it was Australia, Peru, Honduras, and New Zealand, who all were taking place in in a couple of those playoff legs. Mm. I. I think Think this would be just extremely entertaining and i agree with you ryan to go back to your earlier point there are some challenges here with motivation and with branding and how you sort of get people to think about this tournament but i i think the the points that graham making are also extremely that graham is making are also extremely valid here the europa league has some of those same challenges and yet it has grown to be a pretty popular tournament not as popular and it will never be as popular as the champions league but weirdly there is always room for more soccer uh, although I might contradict that later on with my answer to a different Ooh. question there, it seems like there's always room for more soccer and FIFA is always trying to give us more soccer this could be kind of a fun way to get that done
1: FIFA definitely wants more money in its coffers Joe that's yep. for sure and this would be a solution for that you guys are kind of winning me around on this but can I before we leave this question alone just use this opportunity to introduce another alternative and one that I have banged the drum for before <laughs> instead of World Cup Junior Scrap all qualification windows for international breaks, scrap all of those, and make qualification for the World Cup one giant tournament the year before a World Cup in the summer. So FIFA gets its money from 200 plus countries, uh, no constant interruptions in the domestic calendar, smaller nations get that tournament experience they all really want. It's one huge March March Madness nonsense, uh, and it serves the same principle as this World Cup junior would. Any thoughts? Graham, have I, am I still a genius?
3: Um, in principle I like this idea in practice I think it might be difficult unless we're going to build an island somewhere and and with lots of stadiums oh Qatar we just have it in Qatar yeah, we did I that. guess
1: yeah we did that already no that's that's that
2: abstract <laughs> uh, obst- <laughs> that obstruction is out of the way uh, Joe your thoughts on my genius plan so entertaining it would be so entertaining the challenge that I I think is there in practice is not just the logistics of hosting this But it would be the teams finding times to train and work together beforehand, right? Because if we're cutting all the international breaks, and this is something that's actually relevant to the current conversation around FIFA's proposal for a World Cup every two years, is they're trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we... How do we restructure the international calendar? And one of the proposals involves, I believe, just two international windows outside of the World Cup. And so those are going to be condensed. But the few opportunities you have to get together and to train as a group, the harder it is for younger players to break in two sides because there's not as many opportunities to to be in camps. And, and the harder it is for teams to grow together, I would argue. So that's a challenge as well from a spectacle standpoint. This would be incredible, but I'm not sure that a lot of the federations would be all that interested, as sad as uh, that is.
1: Jo- Joe, I left out a, a new rule of my oh, uh, qualification tournament. Um, you have to turn up cold. Like you get, it's like you're playing Wreck league. You have to <laughs> maybe like do a couple of sprints
2: before you right, start, but that right. is it. Yeah, maybe maybe a little. Uh, Touching your toes, sort of situation, otherwise, you're done, you're good to go. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, may, maybe we can go that far, Joe.
1: You're <laughs> quite right. Uh, the kid, thank you very much for that question. Interesting debate there. Let's go to another one from Kenneth Seiden. Hello, Kenneth. Do you think that the Newcastle ownership group are being overly and outwardly ambitious? They are taking over a team in a relegation battle and telling the current squad and staff they'll all be replaced shortly. Hmm. Do you think it's a very real possibility? Much of the current group is going to lose motivation to battle to stave off relegation quick. Uh, in case you're up to speed, Newcastle subject of a £305 million takeover by the PIF Fund. Uh, which is worth seven hundred billion. They now own the club PIF Fund, uh, whose chairman is the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and the PIF is the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. They're worth seven hundred billion. As I say, City's owners, by contrast, twenty-three billion. So they have a little bit more money. They also have a questionable human rights record, of course. Um, the Saudi journalist uh, Jamal Kagashoggi was murdered by operatives of the Saudi regime. That is not up for debate. Um, Amnesty International called the takeover an extremely bitter blow for. Human Rights Defenders. So, Graham, um, Newcastle have come out of the blocks swinging. So maybe maybe actually before we get into the actual meat of Kenneth's question, uh, Jacob Court also uh, wrote in and said, how should we feel about the Newcastle takeover? So maybe I'll ask you both that. How do you feel about it? For me, it's icky. I feel icky about it.
3: (laughs) Graham? Yeah, I I totally share that sentiment. It's a difficult one because... I think I've said this before in the podcast, the, the, the day that Mike Ashley was banished from Newcastle United should have been a day of unadulterated celebration for their fans. He'd been in charge for 14 years, had limited um, ambition at that club to such an extent that one of the biggest clubs in English football was relegated twice, I think, with uh, yep. with Ashley in charge. Yeah, And so it got to the point where Ashley just did not care about that club. He put in the, ve- the very minimum that he needed to just keep things ticking over, particularly when it looked like that club was on the brink of being sold. He, he put very little money into the club. I saw today that they're cleaning the windows of the Gallagate, which looked absolutely manky before. <laughs> it, no one had cleaned that in years. So that kind of gives you an idea of how the club had been neglected under Ashley. But yeah, the human rights record of, of Saudi Arabia, the explanation that has been given from the Premier League of how there's a separation between the PIF fund and how... The the new ownership of Newcastle, um, I don't understand that at all. It doesn't hold any water for me, considering that the PIF fund now own 80% of Newcastle United. And as you mentioned there, the PIF fund is the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia, whose chairman is Mohammed bin Salman. So I don't understand how there's a separation there between that yeah. fund and, and ownership. um So yes, and, and what made me really uncomfortable was... I do believe there can be a separation between Newcastle fans cheering on their team. It is their team, and I, I will always say that clubs are not necessarily their owners. For instance, Manchester United, I don't believe, are the Glazers, for example. So I, I'm not saying Newcastle United fans can't support their team, but the way there was the reception for the new chairman, whose name I've forgotten, he kind of got a standing ovation before kick-off, Sky Sports on on the broadcast, where it felt like they were actively cheerleading sports washing which made me feel very icky as well i think one mm-hmm. line from martin tyler was newcastle united have won the the ownership lottery um it it just makes me feel very icky, and i have i have a lot of questions about the kind of people the premier league are allowing to own clubs
2: yeah yeah but- Oh, gotcha. sorry, sorry, Ryan, I, Graham. I I'm totally with you on that. The last question, and we kind of talked about this right last week on on 101, if I'm not mistaken, the the owners and directors tests, the fit and proper persons tests. This this reminds me, and it probably reminds us all about some of the ethical dubiousness that goes on behind the scenes in sport, right? And that's not a fun thing to be reminded of, but at the same time, I do think it's an, an important thing to be reminded of. I don't know that you can put a lot of stock in that test at this point that the Premier League administers to potential owners and directors that are entering the league to make sure they're fit and qualified and and ethically responsible enough to do that job, right? I think this sort of discredits that entire process, right? And and so that's a problem, and it it casts some, some interesting shadows on the Premier League. And there's obviously challenges here ethically with this new ownership group. Ryan, the word icky is... A great word to describe this This doesn't sit well with me and I'm not going to tell other folks out there how to feel necessarily because as you're saying Graham there is there's some nuance here right and I, I feel for Newcastle fans who have wanted a new ownership group that will spend money and make their team better that's an understandable thing to want but for it to come about in this way with all of the the really awful things that have happened in Saudi Arabia under this regime it's it's hard guys
1: I think, Joe, you've hit on it there with the word nuance as well. And Graham mentioned this too, that you have to acknowledge that this is a great situation for some people, for Newcastle fans some who have been under the mic actually ruling for 14 years. This is this is good for them. And at the risk of both sides in this, this is one of those things, those ethical things in life that we have to navigate. It's like, you know, flying and your carbon footprint of flying on an airplane, eating meat and the environmental impact and the ethical impact of doing that, buying high street clothing and that's made under questionable working conditions. None of that is ethically necessarily straight, but a lot of us do it anyway. And this kind of, to me, feels like the Premier League gave up on its morality a long time ago and we're all still watching it. We're all still complicit in it. And we are continuing to be by still watching the Premier League when Newcastle have this ownership group. So it's one of those things that is icky, but we're all... A little bit complicit and we're living with it and we're still enjoying the product yeah. ultimately yeah absolutely right and, and
3: and it's difficult to tell people that good things are actually bad so if you if you're a newcastle united fan on face value, a lot of good things are going to happen to not just Newcastle United, but to the northeast. You know, that team, you would imagine, is going to be challenging for the title within, they say, within five to ten years. They're going to be probably in European competition, Champions League. Not just that, you know, there's going to be facilities. Wouldn't, uh, given the state of Newcastle United's current training facility, I think that seems to be in the pipeline, a new state-of-the-art training facility. I think the stadium will be getting work done to it. You look at Leicester City's... Owners, um, they have put a lot of money into the into the Leicestershire area. It wouldn't surprise me if PIF do that in Newcastle as well. These are all good things on the face on on face value. It's difficult to then tell fans um, that the 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 grand vision of these good things is not not well intentioned and right. that they're they're ba- actually bad things.
1: Uh, that's a very difficult discussion to have. Yeah, the club was theirs before it was the Saudi ownership groups as well. That's something to. Is an important point. Um, to get to Kenneth's um, question about their ambition, though, Joe, um, Newcastle win lists second from bottom, three points from eight matches. Uh, even with some hefty investment in January, they, they're quite like to, likely to be relegation candidates at this point. It seems clear that Steve Bruce is a dead man walking if he's not gone already by the time we've uh, put out this podcast. It also seems clear to me, Joe, that you know, Erling Haaland or Kylian Mbappé aren't coming in January. There's no band-aid, so they're going to go on this very quickly. And the question of motivation is interesting because there is this implication, if not ex- it's not necessarily been explicitly said, that this team will eventually be replaced. So what motivation do these players have right now to turn it around? They've The next two or three months are massive for this club. I think, and is it going to have to be massive win bonuses or something?
2: I, I think there's real motivation in just the surroundings changing and wanting to be a part of that as a player right I, I think if i was a newcastle player and maybe this is a flawed perspective because i am not a newcastle player but if i was i think i would see this you as could a, be as given a, their <laughs>
3: current squad <laughs>
2: right, Graham. um i'm open I'm to playing many. center back or right back um so there's my resume newcastle if i if i was a newcastle player though I, I think i would see this as my chance to prove myself right if i'm miguel amiron as an example I'm going to do pretty much everything I can between now and January and then between January and the summer and between that summer and whenever. I'm going to do everything that's in my power to prove that I can provide value to this team, right? I think there's an opportunity for a handful of guys that are still not set, right? It could be a different cast depending on how the next few months go. There's a chance for some of these players to be involved as the team changes. I don't think we're going to see an immediate overhaul where there's uh, 20, 30 players brought in and all Mm. these guys on the team are gone, right? So that means you have a buffer period. You have a chance to play well, to catch the eyes of important people in this group now and continue to play and watch this team rise from an on-field standpoint. So I think there's not a real risk of losing motivation in this group. Maybe there is among certain players who already know themselves well enough. This would actually be me if I was a Newcastle player. I would know that I'm not good enough and maybe I would lose slight motivation. But for for some of the guys who are really pushing and have legitimate talent to play at a high level, like Almiron, I believe, there's a chance here for them to be involved and stick around and be important pieces of this puzzle going forward.
1: So yeah, they do have a few decent players. Obviously players like Sam Maximan as well is going to stick around. Graham, if it's not necessarily a case of motivation, it must be a case of th- maybe it's a case of throwing money at this i mean but just throwing money at this problem won't make it go away not, not necessarily going to avoid relegation by spending 60 or 70 million in january
3: yeah and and especially given that the january window is is tougher to get players than in the in the summer window i, I think newcastle are at real risk of going down this season i really do yeah. i think they're i think they're in arguably the worst position of any team in the premier league right now i know norwich are, are below them but Newcastle have still got loads of games coming up against the Big Six, and Norwich have at least ticked a few of those off. And it, it, that January window, there's going to be so much pressure. It's not just on-the-field stuff as well. I mean, they're probably going to have to to hire a new manager, but are they going to hire a new director of football before they hire a manager? And then is the director of football going to come in and put in place scouting networks? And is he going to divide, he or she going to divide... Uh, a style of play that they want you know this these are all things that take time but Newcastle don't have time if they wait too long they're going to get relegated from the Premier League and then building from the championship in a weird way might actually be easier than building from this kind of relegation battle that they're in just now but it's it's going to lose them a year so you know Amanda Stavely saying five to ten years to, to win the Premier League title that they're, they're mm. predicting you know you're adding a year on to that spending a year out of the, out of the Premier League so yeah, I, I don't think it's easy at all. I think they need some smart people to, to come in and, and make some quick but not hasty decisions.
2: Okay, okay, hold on. Sorry, sorry. What, I got I to gotta cut in real quick. Before this season started in our previews, uh, I predicted, or maybe I didn't actually do it on air because Ryan encouraged me to not say it on air, mm-hmm. but I said, I think Newcastle are going to get relegated. You did. And now you, you all are on my side. and And it's funny because I have now changed my tune and I really don't think Newcastle are going to be relegated at this point. I think... Yeah, acquiring players in January is hard. such a contrarian, Joe. Oh, oh, you know me. Uh, Acquiring players in January is hard, but Newcastle now have the money, and I don't know how hard it's going to be for them. And I'm not expecting them to overhaul the squad in January, as I've said. But I do think a couple of smart additions, if they can make those additions and a, a smart coaching change could get this team above that line. Not high up the table, certainly, not even approaching mid-table, but I think they could escape relegation if those things happen. So I guess I'm, I'm not hmm. saying they're for sure not going to be relegated, but I think there's a chance they stay up if they make some smart moves
1: that's interesting Joe and for the record I would never tell you to not say Newcastle be relegated because you know I root for Team Chaos and that <laughs> true, would have been true. wonderful uh, in that respect with all due respect to Newcastle fans listening uh, I went back to look at Man City's first uh, season under new ownership in 2008-09 to see if we get some lessons from that and the first obviously the very one of the very first things they did was um, steal Rubinio away from Chelsea on deadline day with him sort of reading off the page like what club he'd just been sold to yeah. basically um, and then that he January thought, he when,
3: thought he'd for am i I'm, I'm sure i read that he thought he signed for united at yeah. that point yeah he literally didn't know he <laughs> which got is swiped tra- at like, which is tragic
1: yeah yeah it was he was going to chelsea up until like 1159 or something it was insane um and in that january window they got Wayne Bridge Craig Bellamy Nigel De Jong and Shea Given from newcastle um but they still kept a core of the team for quite a few years they still before the takeover the events on company they had Zabaletta, they had joe hart uh, Mika Richards uh, Mark Hughes lasted just over a year as manager before he was replaced, and then they did spend a lot of money the next season. So, uh, if we're if we're to learn from that lesson, then Newcastle might buy four to five players this January if the market allows. But I'm, it, it it is a very very difficult battle for them at this point. And I think that the one piece they need to do is to change the culture at the club is to get a new manager in as soon as possible. It's uh, with all due respect to Dee Bruce, it seems he's he can't have much more effect there, Graham.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm hoping they um they do that thing we were talking about where they just buy nov players with novelty names. So our good friend <laughs> uh, Mr. Jiz Horncamp ending up at Newcastle in January, Fabian Asman, who is a a, a goalkeeper as well. That would that would be my the route I would take, and ma- that's maybe why I'm not
1: a director of football. <laughs> oh, I would love to see Jiz all over shirts at St James's Park. That's <laughs> oh, all I'm geez. saying. Graham. Let's take a quick oh, no. break. We'll be back very shortly with more listener questions. Total Soccer Show, we are back with your listener questions. Here's one from Shreyas Romani. Hey, Shreyas, how's it going? What are coaching badges and how do you obtain them? Does this go differently in different countries? And can Is this our or
3: social asking this question? <laughs>
1: This me (laughs) does this go differently in different countries (laughs) and could someone who's obtained coaching badges in the u.s use them to go coach in europe for example graham you got your nice ollie burn off there so i'll let you kick (laughs) off here with what one needs to do to become a qualified coach in the uefa zone
3: yeah so sorry I'm just being really uncool and laughing at my own joke there <laughs>
2: but it was good it was good it was funny It, it deserved yeah, so, a laugh from you Graham it was good
3: thanks Joe so coaching badges are essentially I might be stating the obvious here but they're essentially a qualification to be a coach to put it simply you get all sorts of levels of coaching badges so you you have ones that you need to be a coach at youth level all the way through to your pro licenses which you need to be uh, head head coach in a in a professional league and you can get your coaching badges through your um, national association so anyone anyone can start these these coaching courses you, there is a there does tend to be a a, a fee you know what you have to pay for that course and they're quite cheap at the at the base level i know a lot of people um for instance when i was at school my my high school football team coach had very base level coaching badges so that there's not much of a there's not much of a barrier for anyone to do their their coaching badges at a low level obviously it then gets progressively more expensive and by the time you get to a pro license level it's my understanding that you would need to be endorsed by a by a club and um, so I I would personally I would go to the the Scottish FA who then would run the course that is endorsed by uefa and you would get your your license from uefa and from the scottish fa by the way the scottish fa have a, a world-renowned coaching setup. it's where jose Mourinho got his pro license and it's where incidentally uh, jesse marsh got his pro license as well don't don't blame us rb leipzig fans i'm, I'm unsure whether i rb leipzig fans like jesse marsh or not but I, i'm using it for a joke anyway so that that is my um quick summary of what coaching badges are
1: plenty of zingers from Ruthven today I'm loving it yeah Jesse Marsh uh, did, did his, his pro license in Scotland as you say in 2017 taking a bit of time off from the uh, rebels New York duty New York Rebels duty I should say or uh, Bob Bradley and Brad Friedel also uh, have their UA for pro licenses among the American coaches that do so uh, so to, to get to Stra's question if you are a. US coach and you come to Europe and you want to coach in a top league, you need the UEFA Pro license. Uh, it's been a requirement in the Premier League since 2010. And I was reading up, um, I was wondering if like, did they make Sir Alex Ferguson go and do badges? They did not. He was like, uh, like if you've got T-Mobile service and you get a new contract, he was grandfathered in. Um, <laughs> so it's a, yeah, he got a diploma and people like Arsene Wenger got those too. But uh, you need that um, that qualification, if you're coming in now and it's necessary for Champions League and UEFA competition. The qualification, Graham, apparently takes uh, a year to complete the pro license, that is, you need a minimum of 240 hours, of which 90 hours are practical. And it's aimed with dealing with situations familiar to fans of the Premier League. That's from the Premier League website there. Um, there are some dispensations, however, that have been given over the years. You can get a top job without a pro license if you have banter. Because Tim Sherwood, uh, when he came to Tottenham, he had his l- UEFA A license and his B license. He did not have the pro license. So pro license is tier five and the very bottom one is tier one. UEFA A and B are three and four so he didn't have it all the way but he had a certain amount of time to get them Gareth Southgate England's manager in his first job at Middlesbrough he got a dispensation for not having that badge too Um, and Joe perhaps you can give us some perspective on US soccer which has a pro course which Jesse Marsh has the uh, US soccer
2: um, qualification as well yeah, it's, it's a similar situation with U.S. soccer relative to UEFA in that there's a bunch of different levels. You climb the levels, they have different requirements, and they get longer and, and more challenging as you go up. So there's a grassroots course on, on U.S. soccer's website that you can do online. It takes like an hour or so. I've done it before. Then you go to D and then C and then B, and then you can either pick senior A or youth A and then pro. So there is that pathway. One thing, I don't know, Graham, you mentioned that a lot of them aren't that expensive, or at least when you start on the lower levels mm-hmm. in Europe. I'm I'm curious to see the difference in pricing there because I was just looking, and the D license here in the U.S. is almost $500, um, and they get more and more expensive from there. So it's not – It's not necessarily insane for the D license, but it it gets pretty hefty as you go up. Speaking for myself, I have chosen not to do more of my licenses because it feels like I'm I'm throwing good money after bad in a sense right now. So there is a, a, a cost to those licenses. As far as what license you need to coach at the pro level here in the U.S., that situation is still weirdly murky. You can coach in MLS and USL or NWSL without a pro license right now. They're trying to fix that. They're trying to get their coaches up to speed. But there have been situations, and this is one example that's relatively close to me geographically. Phoenix Rising's head coach, Rick Schantz, was just getting his C license back in 2019. And he was coaching one of the best teams in USL at the time. So I want to note, there is not a direct correlation between your coaching badges and your capability to coach a team and be successful doing it. But right now, U.S. Soccer is still trying to get their coaches up to standard. There are a number of coaches across those three leagues that I just mentioned that don't have their pro licenses, although I would expect that to change over the next decade or so. Joe, you've buried the lead there. You mentioned that you've got some coaching licenses. Can you elaborate? Uh, I, all I have, Ryan, is the grassroots one, which, again, anyone can do online. I'm pretty sure it's free. It might have been $25. I don't remember. I did it a couple of years ago. It was it was helpful in, in terms of understanding how to coach at the youth level on how to coach and go out and maybe coach your kids' teams and things like that. So there's, there was value in it, I think. There's no, like, real tactical meat to it, which did not surprise me, I should say. Uh, I'm sure that comes as you climb the ladder a bit. But, yes, I do have uh, my grassroots badge, which means, yeah, I'm basically Jose now. So, I don't know. Come at me.
1: You've basically got a sign that says Believe taped above your doorway now, Joe, it sounds like. Yes. Uh,
2: do you aspire to be a coach one day or to at least do the licensing program a little more? I would be interested to do the licenses. One thing I've thought about in the past is trying to see if someone will pay me. like what will cover those fees to go and actually take those courses and I can write something about that experience or or learn more about what goes into coaching education. Because here in the US, it's a pretty hot topic, at least in some circles, about how these coaches are being educated. And if that education is good enough and not that I'm the sole decider in terms of what is being taught and, and the value of what is being taught. But I do think it would be interesting to go in and take those courses. It's something I would like to do either for some, some piece that I'd be writing or, or just for my own education. But yeah, there are, there are some hurdles along the way. It gets, gets harder and more expensive and more time consuming as you go along. So I don't know how practical that is in a long-term sense. That's really interesting. Um, for the record,
1: I also have my B licence, um, but it's in Balloon World Cup. It's not in <laughs> soccer. Um, but I, I hope to graduate to pro so I can get up to Gerard uh-huh. Leagues at some point. Um, thank you very much, Reyes, for that question. That's a very good one. Uh, another one here from Robert Cordova, who says, Why aren't South American club soccer leagues as popular in the USA? With streaming services making access more available and being in a friendly time zone, it seems the region goes a little unnoticed. And a quick bonus question. Oh, Robert, two questions. What do you think are currently the best South American clubs people should look out for? Um, I wasn't going to... It's difficult to get a concrete answer to this question, Joe, but it seemed like there's maybe some cultural and historical reasons why maybe European leagues are a little more popular in the USA. Maybe it's the fact that Mexico's top league Liga MX is the most popular league in terms of viewership in terms in the US um gets double what the Premier League gets is a, is a, what I've seen, seen from um, stats in 2021 and I think maybe economical reasons maybe this is the biggest reason Joe that there's not as much sponsorship or TV broadcast revenue behind the South American teams and the players who are there tend to for economic reasons go on to Europe or mm. now even North America as well and that that transaction doesn't go the other way generally. You don't generally see European players or even North American players going down to South America. And maybe economics plays a little part in the fact that, you know, the European leagues are watched globally. They're watched across Asia, and they're huge to millions of people there. South American kickoffs, kickoffs while they're popular in the South American times, are not as favourable favorable for global appeal as well, which may feed in inadvertently. To popularity in the USA, I've talked a lot, Joe. What do you think?
2: Going back to one thing you said, Ryan, about the transfers going one way and one way only for the most part, uh, that's that's something that I had noted as well. Brazil and, and Argentina and a lot of leagues in South America tend to serve a similar role in my mind, at least, as Major League Soccer does. Right? They're sending mm. players to Europe, and they are this this tier underneath the upper and, and more popular, generally speaking, top European leagues. And I think that. That redundancy almost might take away slightly from the amount of the amount of people that pay attention to South American soccer on, on a club level. That's not to say that those leagues are of the same quality, because they're not. Brazil especially is is a lot ahead of major league soccer and the top teams in Argentina probably down the list there would wreak havoc in major league soccer and and do very well there but I do think there's some overlap in role between a lot of the the leagues outside of Brazil and Argentina and even those those top couple of leagues in South America relative to major league soccer then there is the fact that there's just only so much time to watch soccer earlier I mentioned how FIFA is always wanting to give us more and that there's a direct tie to, to finances there for me and I think this applies to soccer fans and stakeholders in the United States there's only so much in the time, there's only so much time in the day that you can dedicate to watching soccer. And I would guess, I don't know this, but I would guess that the average American soccer fan is going to watch a lot of Liga MX they're going to watch some Premier League, they're going to watch some other top European leagues, maybe some Americans abroad, right? Maybe they'll pay attention to the Bundesliga, especially in some of those clubs there. And and they might dip their toes into MLS. All of those things will happen, I think, before you have time to dip into South American soccer. And obviously that's me generalizing on a big level here. But I I think it is a challenge to fit all the soccer that you want to watch and could watch into the day. And until maybe some of the the sponsorship money comes into South America and it starts becoming bigger and and more popular generally, I, I think it might take that happening before people start paying specific attention to it. Obviously, again, generalizing there. Yeah. Graham, um, I always watch the Copa Libertadores
1: final, but if I'm honest, I don't watch really any other South American soccer besides that. Maybe because I'm from Europe and it's never been a favourable time zone to watch soccer in.
3: Especially. Yeah, so I, I'm the same. I, the BBC over here actually are really pushing the Libertadores and they've shown the final, I think, the last couple of years and maybe even mm. the semi-finals, I think, they've shown the last couple of years. And, and I will I will watch those and I think that's great. You know, they're, they're really kind of pushing, they're using Tim Vickery a lot for that coverage. And I think yep. you always learn something from him. And he's obviously steeped in that culture and, and, and that football in South America. So, yes, I, I'm the same. The, the problem for me is so, Premier Sports do actually broadcast um, a lot of the Brazilian league, the I think it's what's it called the Brazil, Brazil, uh, Brasileiro Serie A, I think it's called in, in Brazil. Um, but they tend to be on on a Sunday night at the same time as MLS and I will gravitate towards yeah. MLS more than it's just it's yeah Joe's right there's just it's just too much it's not necessarily that I'm not interested in South American soccer it's just there's other leagues that I'm more interested in and maybe it's easier easier to get into as well I think that's a big thing is the, the coverage there's not a great deal of coverage here so I don't really know the storylines as well until you get to kind of the final of the Libertadores or whatever so yeah that, that's it for me Premier Sports that
1: sounds made up Graham. <laughs> so do you remember Satanta Sports who yes. used to have
3: Premier League rights that yeah. is the the offspring of Satanta Sports and they have a number of they have a lot of Scottish football and they have Brazilian football and what else do they have? Oh La Liga La Liga Spanish footballs on Premier Sports but it's um, on
1: La Liga TV that it's related. So when FIFA hire that really expensive PR firm to brand World Cup Junior maybe we'll get them to look at Premier Sports as well. The Premier Cup, yeah.
3: Oh, wait, that's actually that's actually the name of the Scottish. <laughs> they sponsor the, the League Cup in Scotland. It's called the Premier Cup. Okay, we're going to have to come up with a new name. Wonderful stuff. We'll put our
1: heads to that while we take a very quick break. We'll be back shortly.
4: Hey, folks, this is Taylor from The Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what... So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code T-S-S. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code T-S-S to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's
1: episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back with your listener questions. How do I say that surname? Coindro? 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 Coindro is how I would do it, yeah. Coindro, okay. Total Soccer Show, we are back with your listener questions, including this one from Daniel Coindro, who says, Why did they change the offside rule to negate an offside if a defender makes a defensive play on the ball? What are the positives of the rule? Uh, this, I believe Daniel's referring to the UEFA Nations League winning goal, scored by Kylian Mbappe. Uh, Teo Hernandez plays uh, through ball to Mbappe. Mbappe clearly in an offside position, but Spain's Eric Garcia attempted to play the ball. How dare he? He touched it a little bit, therefore resetting the phase of play, thus rendering Mbappe onside from his seemingly offside position. This coming from uh, Law 11 of the IFAB rules. It states that a player is offside if they gain an advantage by being in that position. However, an exception to that rule is a player is not offside if the defender deliberately plays the ball other than a save, presumably by the goalkeeper Graham, it's a rule and it's a an nonsense rule.
3: Yeah, this law is absolutely dreadful. To the to the point where it feels like it's it's an oversight, like something they didn't think about when they were they were coming up with it. I think I think one of the positives to look at the the question. I think one of the positives was to prevent attackers being called offside from mistakes made by opposition defenders where they would play the ball behind them and there was an attacker behind them and the attacker would pounce on that and score. I have no issue with that specific interpretation and case study. However, when you say the law mentions when a defender plays the ball... There needs to be, in my view, there needs to be some subjective view from the referee on what a play on the ball is, because for me, a deflection or a failed interception, as was the case with Garcia in that Nations League final, we also saw, um, I can't remember what Watford defender it was, but it happened with Salah at the weekend as as well, Liverpool Watford. There needs to be a subjective view from the referee on what a play on the ball is, um, and the, the the current law just defies common sense because obviously let's take that one we're talking about the, the Mbappe goal the Nations League final Garcia doesn't stretch out a leg to try and in, in, intercept that pass if Mbappe isn't behind him in an offside position yeah that that to me is and obviously it's subjective but that to me and I think to a lot of people that is not a a play on the ball that's that's the same phase of play do you mean like for me Mm. for me it would need to be a different phase of play coming off the defender that is the same phase of play and and so it needs it needs to change and I've also seen reports that UEFA's head of refereeing a guy called Roberto Rossetti already wants to change this law and there's an IFAB meeting on October 27th and I predict that a change will be made there and it will be immediately implemented rather than waiting to the end of the season just because everyone I've I've heard speaking about this is in unanimous agreement that it's not
1: correct. It's not great, yeah. To, to get to Daniel's second part of his question,
2: what are the positives of the rule? Joe, none? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's hard to find many positives outside of the one that Graham mentioned. It's hard, and I have sympathy for these referees trying to make decisions like this this specific example went to var there's multiple people trying to apply the rule here even if the rule is flawed and i i do have sympathy for this situation and for the people involved here because if the ball comes off more of Eric Garcia's foot than than does it start a new phase of play? And then then it's like, okay, how thin do we draw this line, right? When you're looking at the offside line, it's a different example. How thin do we draw the line? Where do we draw all the other lines? And and where does it actually cut off and and signify that something is offside? This is a different example, but I, I think it's equally challenging to try and decide where you draw... The line in, in terms of interpreting this rule this is why fellas and i've said this a number of times this is why i'm so happy that i'm not a referee because this law is flawed as we've mentioned and i don't know how i would try and interpret it and i don't know how i'll try and interpret it even after october 27th
1: you better not do the rest of those badges then joe <laughs> if, you're, if you're glad about that i'd say that's my advice to you by the way i never not, never really asked it's not an actual badge you get to sew on your jacket like
2: I do not I don't I don't think
1: so like I scouts yeah. like scouts
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it
1: should I'd, be I hope it would be it should be maybe it was one day maybe that's why they were called badges but we're skipping back a question um the one thing I couldn't answer from Daniel's question is when this rule changed when did this become a rule because I can't see any uh where it might have been amended in rule 11 of the IFAB rules and i famously well, not famously, but listeners to this podcast will know that I don't know any of the rules of soccer, so um, <laughs> I'm not the one to ask. But did anyone find out when this came in? Was it was it a recent thing, or was it just a a recent interpretation that's been discussed at the top level?
2: They snuck Graham? it in. They snuck it in. Guys.
3: I I didn't I didn't find anything on when this was 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 mo- uh, put into the law. I, I've I've seen people imply that it's new for this season, but then I also remember a case last season where. I didn't realise that this was a a, a a law, a rule in the game, and then people on Twitter were, were schooling me on no, actually, that is the, the correct interpretation, and I feel like that was last season, but my research has maybe let me down on this. I, I, I couldn't find when it had been put in there.
1: Joe,
2: maybe it's been there all along under our very eyes. <laughs> we just haven't been observant enough to find it. It could be, Ryan. It could be.
1: It could be indeed. Well, it looks like it might be changing. I think, as Graham mentioned, the um, IFAB are going to meet. They have a panel meeting October 27th, coming up in a few days, uh, and they might vote to change this rule early next year. They could actually have an amendment to the offside rule. Yay for amendment. Uh, Thank you very much, Daniel, for that question. Here's one from Matthew Graham. The US plays its home matches all over the country. In England, or nearly all, in England, excuse me, all or nearly all of their home matches are at Wembley. Mexico likewise almost always plays at the Azteca, while Canada seems to move around. Is it one or the other more common in international soccer, particularly among the best? teams Uh, i shall uh, speak up for the case of wembley which is the traditional home of soccer in england no club team plays there regularly apart from if you're tottenham and you play there while your stadium is being rebuilt (laughs) or arsenal actually played their champions league games there back in the day because they didn't think highbury was big enough for the purpose of those games Um, But when Wembley uh, was being rebuilt in the early 2000s, England games actually did tour all around the country. So there'd be games in um, Leeds, in Derby, uh, Villa Park. David Beckham's famous free kick against Greece that got England to the 2002 World Cup. That was at Old Trafford. It wasn't at Wembley because uh, Wembley was being rebuilt. The reason why... Games are exclusively played at Wembley these days, partly tradition, but mainly to pay for Wembley Stadium. Yeah. It is a financial necessity for the FA. Uh, Wembley cost over a billion dollars when it was built. It was massively, massively over budget, like nearly twice as much. Um, and with a nearly 90,000 capacity, the FA benefits from having the ticket sales of those games. It's the reason why the FA Cup semi-finals are both held there as well. That's been the case since 2008. Uh, the FA Cup semis there as well um graham there are a few other national teams who have an exclusive stadium but not a lot
3: yeah not there's not many at all you know if you go through a lot of the the top european countries so spain no national stadium portugal no national stadium italy no national stadium france have a national stadium in the Stade de france but they play games all around the country they have kind of a second um, unofficial national stadium I guess you would say in, in Nice the new stadium in Nice they play a lot of internationals there same with, with Germany um, the Olympic Stadium in, in Berlin is is kind of a I'm not sure if that's an official national stadium but they certainly play cup finals there and obviously a World Cup final was there in 2006 but yeah. they play games all around the country they play them in, in, in Dortmund and I think they play them at the Allianz Arena and you know obviously Germany has countless stadiums they can play high level internationals at. but yeah it, it is it is um it is not that common i i often think of maybe this is a very british centric centric thing to say but i, I often think of it as as quite a british thing um, that to have a national stadium looking at the, at scotland we need uh i often think that there there are obviously some examples that will blow this theory out of the water but countries with national stadiums for me tend to be countries where you have deep rivalries between big successful clubs so in scotland we need a national stadium for cup finals as much as anything it's not so much the international games we played games around the country when the 2014 commonwealth games were using hampden and so we played half games at ibrox and half games at celtic park there wasn't really much of an issue with that it was more the cup finals which obviously tend to be between celtic rangers at least in, in the semi-finals sometimes in the finals so yeah, the, Turkey is another one. Um, I know their national stadium. Uh, sorry, their national team does play games at both Fenerbahce and Galatasaray stadiums, but they do also have the Ataturk as a as a national stadium. Spain is perhaps the the big exception, where obviously you have a a, a massive rivalry between uh, Real Madrid, Barcelona, and I guess you'd put Atletico Madrid in there. But they, they make a big effort to play games around the country. Places like Seville, Valencia, Bilbao, they do use the the Bernabéu and the the Wanda Metropolitano. Obviously, they don't use the Camp Nou because, well, you've seen some of the separatist protests there and I'm not sure mm-hmm. the Spanish national team playing there would go down that well. But they are they are maybe the exception to my theory where often uh, countries with national stadiums are countries with that have clubs that are big and successful and maybe there would be a bit of friction playing in some of those stadiums.
1: Yeah, I, I, I couldn't really think of many national team exclusive stadiums aside from Wembley, like Stade de France, uh, for, for France outside of Paris in Saint-Denis, but they don't always play there. Uh, Hamden Park not having a club team there, but, he, you know, the big traditional ones you think of like the Maracanã for Brazil, there are club teams that play there. Azteca has a club team that, that plays there too. I was trying to think of what um what was the stadium at Euro 2020 that rubbish Spanish one that a team doesn't play at
3: oh the the Seville
1: Olympic stadium the that's Car- Cartuja that's it that was terrible and um that Spain like very rarely play there right but they did for that tournament they did
3: well yeah they, they they have played a few internationals i think they've got one coming up um whenever the next month will be the next international break i'm sure they've got a game at that stadium which i just can't yeah.
1: can't fathom it's a terrible stadium <laughs> Yeah, uh, Seville does have another nice stadium, at least at least one other, at least two others actually in uh, in Seville they could have used. Yeah. Um, Joe, the US in terms of their traveling all around the country, is it fair to say they have one favored stadium? And if so, why is
2: it Ohio, which is no longer there? Yeah, I think for a while it was in Columbus, right? And that was the home of, of Dos Acero and there'd be a lot of important games there. That's changed, though, when U.S. Soccer awarded the the home World Cup qualifying match against Mexico that will take place next month, they awarded that to Cincinnati in their new stadium, TQL Stadium. So there there have been some changes in terms of where U.S. Soccer places their high-profile game. Columbus got the Costa Rica home World Cup qualifier instead, which was at Red Bull Arena last time around back in the, in the 2018 cycle. So things are changing. I don't think U.S. Soccer and, and the U.S. Men's National Team specifically has anything close to... Home. Obviously, they're playing games all across the the nation, but I don't think they have anything really close to a spiritual home at this point either. And maybe it's the the small romantic in me that that would love to see that happen. Uh, I think there have been games in in Kansas City that have been incredible. Uh, they're at Children's Mercy Park. There have been really nice games in Austin recently in terms of the, the the crowd at the Gold Cup and for that World Cup qualifier against Jamaica the atmosphere for that World Cup qualifier was phenomenal. So there is still no real home for this team, and I don't think there will ever be, but it is interesting to watch them kind of search for where that next Columbus will be, and and maybe it will be Columbus at their new stadium, Lower.com Field, which again, did host a World Cup qualifier earlier this month
3: would Would one of the biggest issues with the u s. having a national stadium would it not be kind of the the size of the country yeah, yeah. as well? so where where do you put it? I'm thinking of other big countries that do have a national stadium. so Russia would be an example. they use the Luzniki as a, as a national stadium. but mm. Russia has a very clear population hub. Um, a lot of the country doesn't have a lot of population in it, whereas America doesn't have that. You know, there's a lot of population on the east, there's a lot of population on the west, there's a lot of population on the south, there's a lot of population on the north, you know, so we're, and obviously in the middle of the country, even though you have big arid areas, there are still population hubs there as well, so... It would be difficult to pick a place and say that's where the national stadium's going because then you're isolating a lot of fans from not being able to get to those games.
2: Agreed. And even though Mexico is this really large country as well, Mexico City is far and away the largest city there. So it's a giant country, but that is certainly a population hub and, and it makes sense to have the Azteca right there.
1: You've made me sad, Joe, thinking about the U.S. not having a spiritual home. I was thinking like the Incredible Hulk walking down the street trying to bum a lift at the end of the episode there. It was quite sad. But um, maybe it's in 2026 when the U.S. win the World Cup at SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. That'll become the spiritual home.
2: Yeah. Yep. SoFi, spiritual. I mean, we've already got the, alliver- uh, the alliteration there. So what more can we really ask for?
1: Indeed. Corporate sponsorship, Joe. That's what we want. Anyway, um, let's get one more question in for this episode. A quick one from Patrick Conway. It's a Graham question. Here we go. You're going to like this first sentence, Graham. (laughs) Graham appears to be a big Rangers and Scotland fan.
3: (laughs) I mean, yeah, I don't know where the idea that I'm a Rangers fan has come from. That sort of speculation will get a target on your back over here, but okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh,
1: Gr- Graham a uh, resident of Glasgow, appears to be a big Glasgow Rangers and Scotland fan, uh, says Patrick, however, I heard that many Rangers fans would rather cheer for England than Scotland and many Celtic fans cheer for Ireland. Is there, asked Patrick, any truth for this? Uh, Graham, before you get into your answer, I saw a headline in the Scotsman from the summer Euro 2020 colon a third of scottish football fans will also cheer on england two percent think scotland scotland will win the tournament who are, the, who are these two percent graham who are they <laughs> me uh, <laughs> that was me um is there any truth
3: to this there is some truth to this so i think the thing you're talking about ryan is, is slightly different the, the people who would cheer on england at a major tournament i would also anticipate this is obviously all anecdotal but I would anticipate that they would also be the majority of them would also be cheering for Scotland. They would they would cheer for both both countries, or what tends to be the case is they cheer for all the home nations. Those people.
1: All right, Graham. Um, Uh, Okay, now you've made the difference. I I fear you're going to go down an unpleasant IRA terrorist (laughs) anti-Catholic political path right now. Is that true? Um.
3: Well, you've gone to the extreme there, but you're not far off. (laughs) Um. So yeah, there is some truth to to what is posing the question there it's, it's a little bit of a cliche that rangers fans support england over scotland i'm not sure how true that is in, in a general sense I, as i say i can only go off anecdotal evidence because i'm pretty sure there's no data on this but while i do know some rangers fans who cheer for england i know many more rangers fans who are big scotland supporters and to to, to look at the Rangers side of things first there are two strands to the whole rangers england thing the first one is as you kind of allude to there ryan rangers are Uh, As a club are synonymous with the the union of the United Kingdom. They are Scotland's union club to the point that there is a portrait of the Queen hanging in the home dressing room at Ibrox. That is 100% true. Look it up. Um, And the England national team naturally are a symbol of that that union, especially in, in Scotland. Um, the second strand is a more recent one, and that is that Rangers fans are very suspicious of the... Again, I'm generalising here, but Rangers fans are very suspicious of the Scottish FA after the way the, the club was treated after their financial meltdown. That must be coming up for 10 years ago now that that happened. Yep. And they feel that the Scottish FA bowed to public pressure to to punish Rangers more harshly than other clubs. And so the Scottish national team is obviously the purest manifestation of the Scottish FA. And so you have a little bit of backlash there as well and then to look at the the celtic side of things there's is maybe a slightly more simple celtic fans um well a lot of them will cheer for ireland maybe not exclusively i know a lot of celtic fans who will, who have like ireland football shirts but are also scotland fans but they'll do that due to the club's irish heritage and the roots ireland has in in the the history of the of the club but again i know more, I know Celtic fans who support Ireland over Scotland, but I also know many, many more—like ten times more—who are big Scotland fans. So it's it's slightly exaggerated a little bit.
1: All right, so we learned that Celtic have Celtic heritage. Who thought, who'd have thought it? Was?
3: <laughs> yeah. You would never have guessed that one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Uh, Thank you very much for that answer, Graham. And thank you for the question, Patrick. And thank you to everybody who submitted a question. If you'd like to do so, head to TotalSoccerShow.com and submit yours. But for the time being, we are fini. Thank you very much, Joseph. You got it, Ryan. And Graham, thank you once again, sir.
3: No problem. It's always good fun.
1: It is indeed. Thank you, listener. We'll be back soon with something else. Bye! (laughs) Slash.